Let me make one announcement before I begin here my message. Uh, you'll notice in your bulletin a little card about the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Summit. And uh, it's a request for volunteers. Next month, about a month from now, we have a, uh, a, a summit for pastors and leaders from around the world. Uh, they're coming from all over North America, as well as you know, Africa, Asia, Latin America, uh, Europe. And so we host them for three days. And so we as a church then are serving them in many ways. So you'll see a bunch of opportunities to, to volunteer. Many of you have already. Uh, they're asking on Monday of that week, the 20, I believe it's the 23rd, uh, they need some people who have muscles to come and move chairs and tables. So if you don't have muscles, stay home. <laughs> we love you anyway. You're valuable. Uh, but muscle people Monday, anytime. And then Wednesday and Thursday, which is the main conference, there'll be a bookstore and AV opportunities. Uh, there's some, some big slots open for that. And if you're able to take a day off from work, uh, we'd love to have you, that we can treat folks as if Christ came to visit us. That's hospitality, as if Christ came into our home. We want people to feel that way when they come to uh, New Life Fellowship. All right? Thank you. All right, so uh, our message today is, as we finish up Lent, is what does it mean to follow the crucified Jesus? Now, we've been in about a, a six-week journey here through Lent. Uh, on the cross of Jesus. And today I want to apply it specifically uh, to the issue of discipleship. And what does it mean to follow the crucified Christ? So if you need a, if you have a Bible, pull out Matthew chapter 16 or your phone, uh, get that out before you, and we're going to get to it in just a few minutes. Uh, but it's very much applying Lent as we approach Good Friday and Easter uh, into our lives. <clears throat> Christian Smith is a uh, uh, sociologist out of Notre Dame that's done multiple studies on what many people believe in church. In particular, he started with teenagers uh, in the year 2005. And, uh, and his first study he did it was quite a comprehensive study. He then did it with young adults and then adults and found that over the day, over time, that what teenagers believed in 2005 has kind of emerged to be the general, what many people believe who go to church. So here's what he found. Uh, one is that uh, they believe, teenagers, that a God exists who created the world. Uh, secondly, that um, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Thirdly, the central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Uh, fourth is God doesn't need to be involved with one's life except when needed to solve a problem. And lastly, that good people go to heaven when they die. So he calls it a moral therapeutic deism. And now, number one and two isn't bad. You know, God exists who created the world. That's true. And God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. I mean, that's good. Yeah, it's all good. But it's kind of a, it's a, it's a mushy pseudo-religion is what he calls it. And, and, and he's argued that it basically has taken over so much of existing churches uh, around the world. And it's actually destroyed a biblical Christianity, a cross-centered Christianity from within. And uh, so it's got little to do with Lent, actually, and the Christ of Scripture we're talking about here today. And uh, it's shallow, it's superficial, it's kind of a veneer of Christianity without the power underneath it. And that's why we're in this series on Lent. So our title is, you know, what does it mean to follow the crucified Jesus? And that's what we want to get at today. So, so this, this message is simple but profound. All right, so it, it, in fact, my hope and prayer is that you will experience a Copernican revolution 
in your, in your whole understanding of what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a Christian uh, here in this text we're, we're going to look at in just a few minutes? Now, Copernicus was a Polish astronomer in the 1500s. And up to then, everyone just believed that it was accepted. The earth is the center of the universe, the center of the solar system and all the planets and everything revolves around the earth. And then this guy named Copernicus came along and he said, no. He wrote a book and he said, no, no, the earth is orbits around the sun. We're not the center of the universe. And then, you know, it kind of sat there. Then a guy named Galileo picked it up uh, about 100 years later. And he wrote a book on it as well and said, no, you are seriously mistaken. The earth is not the center of the universe. It is a small speck in a massive universe. And we do revolve around the sun. And so he published this book and then he was put in prison uh, uh, for heresy. And uh, he spent the rest of his life in prison where he died uh, nine years later. And his book was put in, on, on the index of forbidden books for the next 200 years. It's a long time. But obviously the truth won the day. And, uh, but, uh, but we say Copernican revolution. It's, it's, it's a phrase used because it means you have a, a way, a paradigm, or you begin to look at life differently. And, and, it sh- and what happened when, the, when they say the earth is not the center of the earth, universe, once that got accepted, it shook so much of life for everybody. I mean, it had massive implications. In the same way that we're going to talk about today, what it means to follow the crucified Jesus, that if you get this today, even just a little bit, what I'm talking about, you will find it has like a ripple effect in all of life. It's going to affect every area of your life, relationships, decisions, priorities, values, how you spend money. I mean, everything is going to be impacted by this, but it's so big that it's really hard to hear. You're almost like, ah, I don't know. And you kind of keep it at an intellectual level. But what we're talking about today is meant to be lived, not simply intellectually assented to. So, um, because we're talking about the cross and, and discipleship. So here's our text for today, Matthew 16. It reads like this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. So he's letting them know, I'm going to die, everybody. Okay, crucifixion is where I'm going. Peter, who's the leader, took, take, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So it starts with Jesus telling him about the, I'm a crucified Christ. And Peter's like, no way. Peter gets half the gospel. He doesn't get the crucified Jesus part. You can be Jesus-centered and not cross-centered. That's what Peter's about. And so what's so interesting about this, he what it means to be a disciple is means you're a follower. Jesus says, come follow me. And so in, in ancient Israel, the, the rabbi had his followers. And, and so it was actually like, it was a school, but it wasn't like a school we think of a classroom and taking notes and tests. It's a school where you live with your Lord, your teacher, and you follow him. And you do what he does and you go to directions he takes you in. That's discipleship. We're here because the church, the, the, the primary mark of the church is we are here we're people who want to learn to follow Jesus and his words, and so we follow him. What's so interesting about this text 
is Jesus is going somewhere. He's telling about Jerusalem when he's going to be crucified. Now, Peter's supposed to be following. But basically, Peter goes from being behind Jesus, and now he gets in front of Jesus. And now he corrects Jesus. And the word is he rebukes him, all right, and says, never, Lord, you know, this shall never happen to you. So he's totally out of line, all right? Now, Jesus, I mean, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't just say, oh, Peter, bad idea. Get behind me now. It's not what he says. In fact, in the original language, it's, it's a visceral gut thing. Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan. It's very, very powerful. And say, you are out of line, okay? This is not your agenda. You know, it's mine. And, uh, and then he says to him, you do not, ha- you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And really, literally what it means in the original language is you are gripped by the concerns of human beings. He says, Peter, you are trapped. You are gripped by the values and the concerns of the world, of people. And it's gripped you, and you can't see straight, and yet you get behind me. Pretty intense moment. And uh, so this is like what Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer in the 1930s, when, when Germany was being taken over by Hitler, most of the church just kind of followed Hitler. Like, okay, fine. And Bonhoeffer and many other German Christians did not, uh, and they had to kind of meet on the ground and all that. And he wrote a book where he said this, that a Christianity without discipleship is a Christianity without Christ. Amen. Because basically he's saying is that you're, you go, the fact that you go to church doesn't make you a disciple. It just means you're attending church, you're learning some things. But a Christian actually who receives Jesus is a disciple and follows Jesus. Doesn't get in front of Jesus, doesn't get next to him, actually gets behind him and follows wherever he goes. And he, he basically was saying, you guys are out of line. And so Jesus, what he does as a as, as we follow him, he is redefining reality to us. He's redefining reality to Peter. Peter doesn't want to hear it, but he's saying what is highly valued, there's actually a verse, Luke 16, 15 says this. Jesus says, what is highly valued among human beings is detestable in the sight of God. It's really powerful. What, is, what the world highly values, I want you to understand, is, not, is an illusion. It's all going to pass away. Because in God's sight, it's meaningless. And he goes, and what, you know, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's the exact opposite of what do you think. He's trying to get Peter anchor, but Peter is, is not getting it. And so for the last one and a half years, I have been studying the book of Matthew uh, in my morning prayer, taking notes. And I have been studying the theme of what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I've been taking very, very careful notes. And I've got like, you know, I actually summarized them in the last few weeks and put them in 13 and a half pages, single spaced. And I said, oh gosh, I had so much, you know. And I've been, I mean, I've not been, I've not been studying. I've been actually meditating and praying through it for myself. And the question has been, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And now in our case here, Lent, the crucified Jesus. And I had a big list for our time today. I had 20 things on a list. I'm 18, 17, 15, 10, you know, and I got it down to four, okay? Uh, at least for today in, in the message here. And, uh, and I, want, I want you to kind of, I, I don't want you to, I'm going to show you a chart in just a moment because I want you, you got to see the stark contrast of when Jesus refers to being a disciple and that someone like Peter does, or I'll call it standard discipleship of the world. And so after this, he says this to Peter, Jesus then takes a few verses and he turns to all the disciples and he tells them, he goes, let me just tell you guys something. Jesus says to the disciples, Whatever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. In other words, I'm going to die, you're going to die. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There's a lot in there, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that, but I'm also going to expand out to really the whole gospel of Mark, and I'm going to give you, I want you to see the contrast of standard discipleship and what we're going to call here Jesus discipleship, okay? Standard discipleship is marked by the world's values, and that's what Peter has. I'm going to show you the four, and then I'll take them one by one. The first is be popular is the world. Be popular. Jesus' discipleship is reject popularity. Just reject it. Standard discipleship is be great. Jesus' discipleship is reject greatnessism. I know there's no such word of greatnessism, but you get the idea. Standard discipleship is be successful. Jesus' discipleship is reject successism. I know that's not a word either, but you get the idea. Reject it categorically. And then standard discipleship is avoid failure and suffering. Just avoid it. But in Jesus, it's no, embrace failure and suffering. It's actually God's path to new beginnings. Because what Jesus is saying is that on the left side of standard discipleship, and he says it to Peter, he goes, get behind me, Satan, because the ground, the root of all that is actually satanic to pull you away from Jesus, to pull you away from God's destiny for your life, to save your life, not to lose it. And actually, it's the exact opposite of the kingdom of Jesus that he came to bring. So I'm going to take it one by one for you because, again, here's the scripture, Luke 16, 15. What is highly valued among human beings, Jesus says, is highly detestable in God's sight. It's the opposite. All right, let's take them one by one. You can, you'll, I'll put it up later again. You can see it. The first, Jesus says, Peter, the world is be popular. But here, as my disciple, just reject popularity. Now, Peter's the leader of the church. He's top dog. I mean, he's, he's it. I mean, Jesus gets killed. It's all going down, all right? It's going bad. And, uh, but there's a Jesus, the way he even came to earth was with great modesty, it wasn't about popularity. He was born in Bethlehem in a manger in poverty. He was a refugee. He ends up in Galilee in the north. He calls these 12 nobodies. I mean, everything about him was not about getting popular. In fact, he would not do miracles to, be a spe- you know, for, to, to convince people. In fact, the Pharisees and religious leaders said, Jesus, give us a sign. Show us you're somebody. He was so, he was so unimpressive. And he refused to give them a sign. He just refused. In fact, the crowds wanted a sign. I mean, Jesus, if you're going to do the loaves and fishes miracle, at least do it like if I was Jesus, here's the loaves and fishes, you know, a few loaves and fishes, zoom, you know, boom, you know, and there's food for thousands. That's how I would do it. But no, Jesus does it. He has the disciples distribute the food. You can't can't even quite see the miracle. It's an invisible miracle because he's not calling attention to himself. He's not trying to impress people. He, he's, he's doing these miracles, but he's pulling blind people aside from the crowd. And, and, and so it's like he's just rejected popularity. And, and whether he's hated, whether he's loved, it's irrelevant to him. He just kind of keeps moving on. And, and he, just, he doesn't do any self-advertisement. He's not doing miraculous meals, miraculous miracles, miraculous jumping. He's just anchored in the Father's love. And so, so he's challenged us. You're, you're my follower, he says, just reject popularity because ultimately it'll lead you away from where I'm taking you. 
And so we do, when we do things, for example, we do deeds, we do stuff, we do it in a way that's not showy, not to impress people. We don't, we don't do play acting. We don't appear super spiritual. We don't appear, some of us, we're so spiritual, we want to appear super unspiritual. To show we're not like all those fanatical Christians. But we're still acting, you know? You don't do any of that stuff. And in fact, you, have give, you, you are to give up impressing people. Everybody. You're no longer a slave to anybody's approval. And so this is so deep and unconscious. We do it and we don't even realize it. We do it on so many levels. I mean, I mean, I, I mean it's so obvious when you're a teenager, for example, or, you know, you know, you, know you, you go to school and you're, you know, you're trying to act cool and what do they think if I do this and if I say this, how are they going to react? Your whole life is imagining what my actions and words and my dress, how it's going to impact everybody around me. But the sad thing is we actually carry that through all of life, right? I mean, if I say this, what are they going to think? And if I do that, what are they going to think? And, and our whole life is getting a reflection from other people about how we're doing because we end up living for popularity and impressing people. And, and uh, you know, it's like you're with a bunch of friends and everyone's, oh, that movie was phenomenal. That was great. That was awesome. And everyone's saying, that's great. You're sitting there saying, I hated that movie. Oh, man, that was an awful movie. And you're saying, do I say to them, like, I didn't like that movie but in a very small way, it's really a question of popularity. Can I just say it in a nice, in a nice way? You know, it's like you have kids and you go over to someone's house and you got a three-year-old and you don't want to discipline the child because you're afraid your son or daughter might have a temper tantrum. And you don't, want them to, you don't want them to think you're a bad parent. So you figure out some way to slyly, you know, get away from it. You know, I often, because I speak, and right, I have to ask myself my motive. Am I afraid to speak about certain issues because it will make me unpopular? Am I doing this because this is wise and I want to be thoughtful? Or is it really out of a fear of being, not being liked and not impressing people? And I, and I have to wrestle with those questions. Now, I don't know if any of you saw this article that was in the New York Times a few weeks ago. It was about uh, social media. And it was called the Follower Factory. And basically, that, the whole thing was about how people buy followers. Likes on Facebook and retweet, Twitter followers and retweets and Instagram followers and, and LinkedIn followers and all that. And how it's a massive business. I had no idea. It was so huge, you know. And um, it's a black market. So, you can, so one company, Davumi it's called, uh, they have 200,000 customers. Of who are buying followers for popularity. So and it, it's, it's, it's people like, it's, it's celebrities, of course. I mean, can you imagine a celebrity not having followers? I guess, you know, our professional athletes, politicians, TED speakers, models. And then it, the list goes on. It says, even pastors. My God. <laughs> One of the sites where you can buy followers, they just said, just give us your credit card, you know. And little more than a credit card, you'll have a huge following, you know, on any social media. It's called Social Envy. I thought, what an appropriate title, Social Envy. Here's my money, okay? I'm full of envy. But even, and I do Twitter and I do Facebook, uh, but for me it's part of, uh, uh, you know, it's part of serving Christ. It's part of being a pastor. But I have to check myself. What is my motivation in writing this and being thoughtful, actually prayerful, like what is this, you know? And and because uh, it, it'd be very easy to fall into my life is likes and Twitter followers and Instagram followers and all that YouTube stuff. 
And uh, Jesus says, no, you reject popularity categorically because behind it, actually, it's satanic. It's to pull you into finding your worth and value and lovability in others and not the love of God. Amen. And it will ultimately destroy you and cut you off. So you ask yourself just this week, do I, did I act in ways today to get the approval of the person in front of me or, or act in ways to avoid their disapproval? I mean, just, just start asking yourself that question because for many of us, we're so unconscious that so much of our actual life and decisions is based on uh, popularity from others. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, standard discipleship is be great. You know, be big. Jesus' discipleship is no, reject greatnessism. Be, be little. You know, be small. And um, Peter is consumed with being great. The apostle. I mean, he just, I mean, he's got a plan. And it is not rejecting greatnessism of how this thing is going to go down. He has big plans for the future. Satan came to Jesus and inspired greatnessism. Really, he did. I mean, the whole temptations of the wilderness was, don't go this hard path of the cross. You know, turn these stones to bread. Do something sensational here. Jump down from the temple. Show people you got it. You're great, you know, and just bow to me in a minute. And instantly of all the kingdoms of the earth will worship you. Just do it now. And he's trying, he's pulling Jesus into the temptation of be great by the world standard. And of course, you know, Jesus rejects all of them. See, Peter wants victory so badly, he's, he's crazy. He's, he's rebuking Jesus. Later on, he's cutting off people, a servant's ears like, you're in my way. Some of us are so crazy. We want to be great that we end up hurting people to get there. Listen, if you are a person who wants to make it in life, you want to work in the best company. You want to live in the best neighborhood. You want to have the best things. You want to network with the most influential, the best people. You want to build the best security financially possible. If that's what you want, Jesus says, I give you one thing, destruction. Because he who saves his life in this world, he says, you will lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, you will actually find it. Thomas Merton was a, was a, a monk and and uh, I, the reason I love monks, I've learned a lot from them over the years. And again, there's good monks and bad monks, but I've learned lots of good churches and bad churches because a, a good monk moves out of, you know, makes a vow of poverty and stability and celibacy and spends their life in prayer and with the goal of being able to see clearly the idols of the culture and speak, okay, and bring the clarity of Jesus to the idols that surround us, that we swim in. And one great one was a guy named Thomas Burton. And I actually read what I'm going to share with you years ago. And I think I, I understood it a little bit, but not like I understand it now many years later. Here's what happened. He wrote a book in the monastery that it was his memoir called Seven Story Mountain. And he was asked how he felt about it, how he felt about being a success. That was the question. And here's what he wrote. He goes, I replied indignantly that I do not consider myself a success in any terms. And I swore that I spent my life strenuously avoiding success. He says, if it happened that I had once written a bestseller, this was a pure accident due to inattention and naiveness. And I would take very good care never to do the same thing again. If I had one message to my contemporaries, I said, it was surely this, 
be anything you like, a madman, a drunk, of any shape or form, but at all costs, avoid one thing, success. He saw something of how it pulls you away from being and doing what God's given you to be and do, and you end up play-acting and becoming somebody you're not, and you've been pulled away by actually demonic powers from the gifts that God has for you. Now, some of you, and we have some folks, some watching online, some, um, you know, our church here, and uh, who have actually, you have become a success by the world standards in, in your field. I mean, and you've actually risen to the high, some high levels of success uh, and popularity and, and greatness. And we want to commend you for that. That's great. But that you, um, you know, you remember that that's not the whole package. And, and um, you've got to stay grounded if you are going to be able to handle that and not be seduced by it. And I commend so many of you, we do know well, you're part of our fellowship here, that have handled it. And so Jesus' kingdom is not big, it's small. It's a mustard seed, he called it. It's little. And so that means I, 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 uh, it's perpetually mustard seed sized. So I know for me, one of the big challenges always has been my whole Christian life is to not think of the big, but go after the one. In fact, Jesus talks in Matthew 18 all about the little, the one, the one, the one, the one. That's what Mother Teresa understood. That in other words, you work with the one person and you do little things that can't be seen and I'll meet you there. My kingdom is there. And I, I just recently, the last couple of weeks, I made a couple of decisions and I couldn't believe how Jesus was already there waiting for me. But it wasn't in the big, it was in the little. And so we're invited by him to reject greatness. But the third one is, I gave you the illustration. Oh, yeah. So Jesus invites us to give up the whole idea of being great at all, to abandon the quest for status entirely. So you're saying, I want to be great. Jesus says, just forget it. I'm, I'm, I'm Pastor Pete, I'm 18. I haven't gotten started yet. Forget it. Reject it categorically because God's got something way better for you in that. So, and thirdly is, standard discipleship is be successful. Jesus says, reject successionism, you know, across the board. This is probably one of the greatest challenges to being a disciple of Jesus is to reject the world's definition of success that screams at you from every angle. You know, Peter, again, Peter wants victory so badly. He'll do well. He's, he's, he, is, he is pushing people out of the way to be a success. So, uh, again, we measure success by what do you do, right? What do you do? I had a couple people come to me after services today and said, the great challenge when they retire or step down from their paid employment of 30, 40 years is you're a loser. You're nothing. You have zero value, okay? And uh, so what do you do? What kind of money, possessions, power, relevance do you have? How many followers do you got? Uh, are, are, you do, you know, are you traveling the world? Do you have a great retirement account? You know, are, are you making your immigrant parents proud? At least, you do. Are you successful? And are you married, right? Oh my gosh, you're not married yet. What's your problem? And so these messages come out constantly to us. And, and so some of you know, you know, to be a success is to be who God called you to be and do what he called you to do. That's success. And so we look for in, in, in Jesus' discipleship, there's, we have many goals, right? I hope you have goals for your life, like this week I want to do this. I want to manage my money differently. I want to get to a financial counselor. I want to take these courses. I hope you have a lot of little goals for your life that move you forward. But we have little goals, but we have, all have only one big goal, all of us. And here's what it is. It's to hear Jesus say, wonderful, good, and faithful servant. Yes. That, 
In other words, this is our overriding goal in life, that, that there's going to be a final judgment day. We're going to all stand before Almighty God. And the single, our single great goal as Christians is to hear wonderful, spoken at the end of our life at final judgment. Now listen, all I heard growing up was, you're a bum, all right? It's hard to imagine Jesus saying, Pete, you know, well done, wonderful. And like you, I know I fall short a lot. Now, what made Jesus different than the first century rabbis of his day was they were, they were known to being strict, impatient, and perfectionistic and laying heavy burdens on people. Jesus was soft and gentle with slow learners like us. He's a different kind of Lord. And he knows we are human. It's not about perfectionism, everybody. Some of you are you're high-level perfectionists, all right? We live in guilt and shame, okay? So no, no, we live in grace. But it's the direction of our lives that we're, we're sticking with Jesus and we're seeking to be faithful to him. What made the 12 disciples great was they stayed with Jesus. They stayed. They didn't quit. They didn't get offended. Judas quit, one of the 12. They stayed. That's what made them the great apostles. They were just like you and I. They were mess-ups. I mean, the, the Gospels are all about their messing up. Uh, but our goal of our lives is to hear well done at the end. And uh, not perfect, but we do the best we can. So, you see, we're made to be noticed. Like, you, like you, you ever notice, like, you, you want it, something in you, you crave to be noticed and say, well done, great job, I'm proud of you. And so we have all these award ceremonies, right? Nobel Prize and Emmy Awards and Oscars and Tonys and Best Employee of the Month, you know, and Best Citizen of the Year in your town. And, you know, and, you know it's good. Awards are fine. But they're really a taste of what you really want, which is that. So saying, what you want and I want is to hear from God to say, well done. And the word is so interesting, wonderful, good, and you know, good and faithful. It's so interesting, good. The word good, like earlier Jesus has called no one good but God. It's interesting. But here he calls broken disciples like Peter who were up and down, who stayed with him through it all. They fell, they got up. They fell, they got up. They got in front of Jesus. They got rebuked. They got back behind him. But they, but they stayed. That's the invitation here. He says, wonderful. Could you imagine hearing you at the end of your life? Jesus says, you, wonderful. Wow. Good. Good me? You got the wrong one? Me? Good. And faithful servant. That's what we are. It's a tremendous invitation. That's why we're, we're, we're all servants. We're, not, we're a classless society here, you know, before God. And so that's our single greatest goal. And it's, right to see, it's good to seek honor. The question is, who are you seeking honor from? And then here's the last one, big quality of, of standard discipleship. It is avoid failure. Gosh, no, and suffering. Jesus' discipleship is uh, embrace failure and suffering as God's path for new beginnings. Now, Peter was not excited about suffering. And that's why he starts rebuking Jesus. And uh, I find that most of us are not very excited about it either. We forget that the worst moment in human, human history was the killing of God's son, Jesus. It was actually the best moment of human history. And that Christianity at its core 
is about out of suffering and death and failure comes resurrection, life, and glory. That's why we're here in this room. And so I know you're looking for a comfortable life, but I know, so am I, you know, I mean, the last thing I want is pain. But, and we think that failure is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. And then we find out it's actually the best thing that ever happened to us. Think of how stubborn Peter is, the apostle. This guy's the leader, all right? Does he have a strong self-will or what? All right, he's rebuking God, all right? He's, I mean, what is going to break him? What is going to break you? What is going to break me? I can tell you right now, it's not worldly success. It is going to be setbacks, failures, falls, brokenness is going to break you to your will being surrendered to him. There is no other path for any of us but to go through the same path of Jesus who learned obedience from what he suffered. Remember, we're going to Good Friday. Many of you, you want to get to Easter next Sunday? You got to go through Good Friday. You cannot skip Friday to get to Sunday. But it's not just you do it once. It is the Christian life is a series of failures and sufferings as God births new things to us. So some of you think, oh no, this is the worst moment of my life. I'm on a detour. No, you're not in a detour. You're actually on the best moment of your life. Because you're finally in a dark night. You finally got stopped. You're finally in a position to receive revelation from Jesus. You're finally in a position to be changed by Jesus because you're finally shutting up and you've stopped. Because God's got your attention, you're trapped. And you're grumming, you're kicking and screaming. This is awful. And God says, no, I'm giving a gift to you. This is your new beginning. This was a very hard pill for Peter to swallow. It's a tough pill for me to swallow. It is a tough pill for all of us to swallow. Remember, behind popularity, greatness, success, and avoiding failure and suffering is satanic powers. They're trying to pull Jesus. Skip the cross. You don't need to go that painful way. It's so slow. People not believing. Slow disciples. Right? Come on, why? Who needs this? Someone who's actually in the room right now sent me a Facebook page that I had hurt her um, through being insensitive. It was when I was lead pastor at New Life a number of years ago. And uh, she had wanted, she'd made a point about Native Americans being engaged in the racial reconciliation discussion. And I actually remember it. Uh, and she did it very kindly, and, and I, she, you know, bring it up to me. And I, I kind of, I just kind of, what's the word? I just kind of blew her off. I wasn't sensitive. I said, nah, nah, it's not relevant, you know. And I, and I justified it myself. I, I, had, I had a lot on my mind. There was other bigger issues going on with racial tensions here in New York. And she wrote me an email, and she's talked to me a couple times about it, but she wrote me an email recently, not an email, Facebook, personal message. And I remember getting it, and here's what I said. And she, she, wasn't, she was very nice text, and she said, Basically, you know, I really was hurt, basically, when you did that and cut us out of the discussion. And honestly, here's what I said to myself. In my gut, I was like, no, like, no, like, 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 never, Lord, like, this is not good, you know. And so I apologize, uh, you know, in the text. But then we saw each other a few days later. And I just remember, I wanted to say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you, I don't know if you're aware, I'm sorry is very different than will you please forgive me? It's a really big difference. And I just remember saying, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't want to, and she was a very nice person. Like, this is a, I've known her for years, a wonderful person. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to humble myself. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to acknowledge my failure. I didn't want to humble myself. I didn't want to dig it all up. And, and feel, take the time to actually feel 
what it would like to be in her, what it would be like to be in her shoes and my, and then me being insensitive. But I knew it was God. You know, you just know it's God. It was just God. And though I said, never, Lord, I said, okay. And anyway, I did it. It was wonderful. And she was wonderful. It was, a fa- it was fantastic. But it maybe it was something as small as that of my own failure. Listen, my transformation over the years in Christ has all come out of failure and suffering. Oh, I hate saying that. But it's true. It's not come out of successes. It's where God's met me. It's where, it's where and I'm telling you, the same thing with, with the apostles. They never would have made it without the cross and resurrection. They would not have made it without many deaths. I don't know mature people who have not suffered. So you may be resisting the very gift that God is sending your way because you've got a plan for your life on how things should unfold, when it should unfold, and how long this pain should last. Because you know better, you think, than he does. And the news is, no, no, Jesus' discipleship, embrace it because God has taken you, and you can, you can take this to the bank, Jesus is alive. There is always a resurrection. But you have to stay with Jesus in what feels like a detour and what feels like it's a deep hole and you'll never come out, that if you stay with Jesus, you will come out the other side into resurrection. So the reason we are into emotionally healthy discipleship at New Life Fellowship, which has two really big components, is because we couldn't figure out how to get at rejecting what's on the right side of that. In other words, it takes a lot of, we call it emotional health, self-awareness to even be aware of those unconscious drives to be seen by other people, to impress other people, to be seen as popular or successful or great. In other words, that, is a, that takes a lot of reflection. That's why part of our discipleship is going into those areas with the theology, as well as we call a contemplative, slow-down spirituality where I have time to let the word of God, of Jesus, go deep in my heart and actually change me. I've got silence. I've got stillness. I have time before the Lord to reflect before him so I can hear God saying, Scazzaro, get back. Get back, you crazy man. You, you know, you're dangerous. And put that sword away before you kill somebody. So let me ask you, as you look at that list, here's the list of these four things. Which is the particular one that Jesus is inviting you to reject? Is it reject popularity? If you're going to pick one because you find yourself trying to please people, is it reject greatnessism because you're trying to make decisions to show people that you're great? Is it rejecting successism? So I can't tell you how many people get into pro- over the years have told me, I got into this field all because I didn't want to be seen as a loser. Is it that? Forget successism? Reject, or is it embracing failure and suffering as God's path to a new beginning? And that it's your time to actually embrace it rather than run from it. And uh, here's, listen, some of you, this is where you are, okay? You are on the wrong way, okay? Go back. Now, discipleship is not a one-time decision. Like, okay, did it. I received Christ. I'm a disciple. No, every, actually, if you look at the New Testament clearly, over and over again, disciples have to re-up. Every day, like, re-up. Like, every day I decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm, take up your cross daily and follow me. It's like, it's a life. And so I'm aware, do you realize today I could say, you know what? Or tomorrow, I'm saying, you know what? Forget this. Reject, reject, reject. I'm going for the popularity. I'm going for the greatness. 
I'm going for success. I want it now. I don't want to wait till well done. I'll be dead, all right? I want it now. And I don't want this pain. I'm going to pay people to take away my pain, all right? I'm going to make a lot of money, and they're going to do it for me. Do you realize anybody, any, Judas got fed up. Do you understand? Judas was with Jesus. But by the end, he said, this is, this is really happening. This isn't, this isn't just theory. And Judas is a warning to all of us. Amen. Don't ever think it could never happen to me. Don't ever think that. That's, that's, going, it, so that's why discipleship, we do it over and over again. So with that, let me, let me so I want to invite you, the worship team, come on forward. But I want to invite you, if you're ahead of Jesus right now, because some of you are like, you're ahead and you're saying, Jesus, come on. Come on, I need you to do this. I got this. Take care of my kids. My job, change my boss. You know what? I need some more money as well. I want to go on a nice vacation this year. You know, change my, my spouse because he is a real pain in the neck, you know. <laughs> and my kids, fix them too, you know. And you're just ahead of Jesus. Your prayer life is primarily telling Jesus what needs to get done. Well, he wants to shift that where you're behind him and you're saying, okay, Lord, what would you like to do with my life? How do you want me to pray? Where are you going that I can follow you? So I know that you, like me, you can't do this. Like, you don't have the power to live the right side. I mean, I look at that list and I say, we are swimming in an ocean of the world on the left side. We're swimming in it. And so this is the only way that you and I can live Jesus' teaching. We can't live it on our own strength. Uh, we need a miracle from above. When the disciples said to Jesus, who can be saved? I mean, who, who can be a Christian? If this is it. And Jesus says, with human beings, this is utterly impossible. I want you to think about that. This is utterly impossible. To become a Christian to have a relationship with God without a miracle coming from above is not possible. When you come to Christ, that's a miracle. Some of you, today's your day for a miracle. Come to Jesus. It's a miracle to get on the road. But not only is, in a sense, conversion a miracle, to stay on the, to stay on the road requires a transforming miracle. That too is equally impossible. Like, you can't in your own strength. That's why he gives the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. With human beings, this is utterly impossible for you to live that right side. But with God, absolutely everything is possible. Just, just let that word sink in. But with God, absolutely everything is possible. And that's why he puts at our disposal this, this little thing called prayer and faith. Like, like when you come to God with even the littlest faith, the fact that you're here is faith. We're going to have some prayer teams right now be up front in the balcony. If you'll come for prayer and say, God, I, I need help, that unleashes such immense power from God. It's extraordinary. He says, if you'll come with mustard seed faith, you can say to a mountain, move from here to there. Nothing will be impossible to you. So I want to invite the prayer teams to come on forward right now. And let's all stand for, together. Listen, the only way to follow Jesus is on your knees, broken, 
needy, weak. So when you come for prayer, it's actually an expression of faith because you're basically saying, I need help. And that is what Jesus is waiting for, to release power into your life. And it's it's gift. And so we're gonna, I'm going to pray right now. We're going to have a time of worship. And then I want to invite you forward to come for prayer up there in the balcony where Peter and Carol are and up here in the front. And we're just going to pray for you briefly, uh, lay hands on you for the power of God to infuse you to be free. Now, you may have been convicted about one or two things. Bring that, share it very briefly, and we're going to pray for you and bless you, okay, as we worship. So, Lord, I pray a blessing right now in this room. Push back the powers of hell. Fill this room with your glory. Free us to live the lives you've given us to live as a gift to the world. And free us, I pray now. Do that work in the name of Jesus in these prayer lines. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, let's begin and worship together. Please come. Balcony, they're up there, Peter and Carol. Uh,